Welcome to the Blueprint Interviews podcast, where we explore the blueprint for each of the world's most interesting industries and the careers within them. Ever wonder what it's really like to work on a presidential campaign? What it's really like in the early days of a billion-dollar company? What do you see on an all-night shift in the ER, or in day-to-day combat, or on a blockbuster movie set? What exactly goes into building a 100-story skyscraper? We interview people in the arena and get down to the brass tacks of how they got there, what they do at the most granular level, and anything and everything about their domain. Let's dive in. On today's podcast, the very first episode of the Blueprint Interviews, we have a good friend of mine, Craig Carey. I met Craig about five years ago through a friend, and I knew immediately that he was someone that I needed to hang around with. Uh, As you'll hear on this episode, the guy is no joke. He started his first restaurant at 27, Big Buns, which is a burger spot right outside of Washington, D.C., and the road to get there was far from smooth. Uh, And then he turned it into the successful business that it is today, which was equally as daunting. uh, And we'll hear about that later on the podcast. He also helped me land a job at DoorDash when he told them that he wouldn't sign up unless they hired me. Uh, So obviously he drives a very hard bargain. This episode serves as a roadmap for anyone interested in opening their own restaurant. It's packed with insights like how you should always multiply your budget by one and a half times when starting a restaurant. Low-level details of how to actually operate a restaurant day-to-day, like when to farm out operations to suppliers or develop the processes in-house. And we conclude with a short chat on the future of the industry. Overall, just an amazing entrepreneurial story, and I hope you enjoy. And you know what they call a a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? I mean, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the quarter pounder is. What do they call it? They call it the Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. All right, on today's podcast, we have my friend, restaurateur, very legit entrepreneur, as soon as you're about to hear a guy who has a very inspirational story, who's here to talk about his experience in the restaurant industry, Craig Carey. And so I'm actually going to go back to the story of how we met each other, which was my friend uh, happened to go to a bar that you were covering a shift at. And he said, you know, he started talking to you and he said, you know, we should actually get in touch. And, you know, that story uh, basically is, is kind of an embodiment of you and just hustling in the restaurant industry. And so that reminded me of the first thing that you told me was that, you know, when you wanted to start a restaurant, what did, what did you do? You quit your job and then worked in basically as a server, right? In the front of the house and then up to a manager uh, at a different restaurant. And then from there, you, you dove right in and you started your own restaurant. So I think that that's actually a good starting point for your story of how you went from just Craig, the, the guy, I believe you're working at a, a, for a soccer team and marketing. That's correct. And all the way to uh, an exit to a regional uh, restaurant chain. And so Craig has uh, started Big Buns. There's two locations, uh, which he sold last year to Thompson Hospitality Group. 
Um, regional chain owns Mac, Matchbox, uh, American Tap Room, a few others, right? Yeah, a few other restaurant retail brands, but their real bread and butter is large office campuses and uh, airports as well as uh, universities. So think Sodexco, Aramark, that type. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's dive right in. So what actually made you in the first place back to those early days want to open a restaurant? It would have to go back to the soccer experience. So I went to William Mary, a small school in uh, Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. Those that haven't heard of it. Uh, and an entrepreneur spoke and he actually owned several different businesses, car dealerships being what gave him the cash to fuel everything else. And had a, keep in mind, this is 2001, 2002 when he spoke. So exciting internet days, owned a .com and um, actually just purchased a minor league soccer team that played underneath DC United. So I went to go work for him, went up, asked him for a job, said I was graduating in, in four to six months and uh, worked in marketing, but had a lot of exposure working on two early stage companies and caught the entrepreneur bug right away. So every entrepreneur has a story of they mowed lawns or, you know, sold something door to door. I, I have all of those stories. So I think it was all uh, part of my, my DNA. Uh, but what I really liked was how many different projects and problems this guy worked on on a daily basis and for me that's just that's that's what it was going to be you're going to create things and build things and and lead people and uh, I got to see all those things and and exposure to him and uh, worked for him for two years and going into the restaurant wasn't I don't even know how you would say um, how I ended up Picking the restaurant, the, the long story short is I, I had probably 10 to 15 different ideas. And for whatever reason, that seems like the easiest, which as we'll get into is probably the, the biggest mistake out of all, because I, I think restaurants are among the, the hardest of the hard. That being said, it made sense. And I had uh, family members in the restaurant business, so I knew I had some resources there. So that's why I picked it. I picked it from business approach. I thought there was a, a dressable market. I thought there was a problem in the market. And I thought I had also some um, less risk in terms of a, it was being validated elsewhere in the space. So I made the decision that that would be the first. So I actually wrote that business plan in, in 2002. So this was 2004 when I made the decision. First restaurant wasn't open until 2007. So we're filling in the gaps between 04 and 07. Uh, and but, so that was, that was, and for people that just don't know, Big Buns is in Washington, DC. It's, it's, uh, in Arlington, actually there's, there's two locations and it's a, how would you describe it? It's a burger place. Really good. Burger place. We define it as fine casual or fun casual. So it sits between, let's say a, a good full service restaurant. Um, in this market, you know, you'd be looking at, a, a great American restaurants, um, something that's just consistent, really craveable food. And it sits between that. And then let's say a fast casual think Chipotle, think five guys. So there's this, 
this big space between those two where the food product, the quality is that of the full service, yet the service model and the pricing model is a little bit different. Square footage of the space is smaller. Um, so it's kind of this hybrid between the two and, and you're starting to see more and more of them pop up where we didn't take, we didn't cut any corners on, on product quality and we didn't really go after a lower price point, but we could offer that same great food without a 20% tip. Um, so that does put you at a competitive advantage over the only place you could get that product would be full service, also speed of service and just casual, just quick and quick casual. Hence why I guess it's called fast casual. Yeah. I mean, I, hybrid. I always thought of big buns as kind of shake shack with a little bit more TLC. And that's, that's coming from someone who's obviously, that's how most people are going to think of it. Most people know Shake Shack, but Big Buns, I, I would say is better personally. Uh, but this is 03, we're talking about now, 04. So where, so where does that sit in the market when you're looking at that? Because I don't think, I mean, I don't think I heard of Shake Shack until probably 12. And that's, that's obviously the closest restaurant to, to Buns, I would say. Shake Shack was still operating out of a, a park, I believe, when I had that business plan. They were, you know, just a, a small stand up in New York. I remember going up there with my mom and, and we waited in line for an hour like everybody else to try it. I mean, uh, if you're getting in that business, you should know who Danny Meyer is. He's, I remember reading his book in college, Setting the Table, which was, book. which was some inspiration between how, how you approach hospitality. But Shake Shack... Um, it's funny. It's not really about better or best. I mean, Shake Shack serves a, a good burger. There, there are a lot of places where we differentiate. And uh, I mean, gosh, they built a killer brand, really good burger. I still, you know, eat their food. It's not like the the beer business. We're either Miller Lite or a Bud <laughs> House, and they're like bitter enemies. Uh, I think food is much more promiscuous. Uh, that being said, uh, I I think they're a, like this high level fast food. And you can't eat a burger every day. And we'll talk a little bit about however you want to dive into concept, but that's one place where we definitely differentiate. You know, you can't go to Shake Shack and get burger bowls, for example. Um, yeah. So let's 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 actually dive into this. So you wrote the business plan. You know, you're feeling confident. You got that experience in the in the restaurant industry. You know, what what are those next steps if you want to start a restaurant? You're getting you have to you probably have to get the money. You have to find the chef. Uh, you know, you have to find the location, which is, a, <laughs> I've, I, you know, we've, we've spoken about this real estate's a crazy game, um, that you're playing as well as trying to sell food. So what are the next steps to actually go and open that restaurant? How'd you do it? Yeah. So it's a little bit of, there, there's a sequence of events, but also a bit of a, a shell game. It, it's some things have to come first, even though you have to, uh, obviously the expressions fake it till you make it, but you have to do that to some degree. So for me, it was, I worked for an entrepreneur. I had plenty of experience in my head. Let's go raise capital. And just like everybody who tries to raise capital, they put together some type of business plan or pitch deck and they go trade on their name and experience. And I got laughed out of every single meeting. And rule number one is don't invest in restaurants. So these people were all smart, but, uh, they all said the same thing. It was go get experience. So if I see that, um, uh, commonality between those, I'm, I said, okay, I jumped the gun. Let's go get experience first. Then we'll go back to the, the money raising piece. So I 
as you said, went to go work for Great American Restaurants. They've got the best reputation in this market. Uh, gosh, at this point, I think they're up to 14, 15 restaurants, most of which do over 10 million a year in revenue. So I walked in the door. I had, I still had my job with the soccer team. We were finishing up the season. We actually weren't going to make the playoffs that year. So I knew I only had about four or five weeks and, uh, walked in the door and said, I'd like to be a manager. And they laughed, which <laughs> goes to show how disconnected because, managers at a the restaurant I ended up working for did close to $11 million a year. A manager in an $11 million restaurant, it's a legit job with a lot of responsibility. And you should come in with a lot of experience, which I didn't have. So they said you could start as what they call tigers or food runners. It's a, it's a food runner. And I said, sure. So I started running food. Uh, That's some serious uh, humility to have. Because you were, were you director of marketing for the soccer team and then... Yeah, but you know what it's like working for early stage. My my title was nice and fancy, right? But <laughs> I did. I, I mean, you name it. I, I can remember we didn't have people for halftime promotions, and we had sponsors. And I would even go out into the field on the fifty yard line at halftime. You know, I'd written scripts for the announcer. You just do whatever it takes. Right? But I, I think mean, that's most early stage. Yeah. E either way, you're a guy with a, a college degree, few years work. Uh, experience and and you're so committed to starting this restaurant that you know you're willing to go run food to learn the business from the ground floor up well get ready for when you open your own restaurant because there's every every single job including you know head head of janitor janitorial duties you, ha you just have to be willing to do whatever it takes yep uh and and it's helpful right it's as a food runner, that's, that's, a, that's a function. That's a job with responsibility. How did this, this restaurant group get to whatever they are now, 100, you know, 160 plus million in revenue, had to do an $11 million restaurant with this great reputation where you should learn every job from you know, prep cook to what's the chef do? What's, what's the maintenance person do? You should know every single function. So I, I'd want to learn that anyway. I just didn't think I needed to. So it was kind of helpful starting at the, the bottom level. What, what was running food? Uh, running food, you uh, would walk in, you'd have some type of checklist to get set up for the shift. You know, everything from cutting bread to making sure certain things are stocked, silverware is clean, roll-ups are done for tables. So what we call in the industry side work. So a lot of side work and then shift starts and it, running food. I mean, literally food is in the window. Uh, which is what we call the window sitting under heat lamps, going out to a table, your time sensitive food. So you got to get it out there. Um, know where you're going, uh, know your table number. So you're dropping food in front of people. You're not announcing food and then you're taking service as far as it can go. What else can I do for you? Whether it could be upselling another drink, communicate that off to the server and you're, you're already back. And then of course you're, you're grabbing as many plates as you can, uh, from tables on your, your way back in and, and repeat until the night ends. And then, you know, it's closing work. Um, that could be anything from doing dishes to, you know, we did have a, a designated dishwasher, but doing dishes to getting set up for the next, the next shift, the next day, or whether it's that, that night. So the next service. So, um, but then moved, moved quickly from there. I think when you're willing to learn and you're, you're motivated and you, um, you're doing your job at a high level, it's quick to, quick, you can move up pretty quickly. So it was tiger or, you know, food runner to, I was a server. And then I became a coach, which you're allowed to, to train incoming servers. And then from there it was bartender. And then, um, 
So I felt like I had a good understanding of front of house and I needed to get into the back of the house. So they do a comprehensive managerial program. I mean, it's like, gosh, it was like three weeks or three, three weeks, three months long. And I remember starting, you'd, you'd get to the restaurant at 5 a.m. because that's when the first person got there. So you worked every single position in that building. Um, so MIT, and then uh, once you kind of graduate from that program, you become a manager. But the beauty of that MIT program is you're accepting deliveries, you're seeing food costs, you're understanding inventory, and, and that's your kind of first introduction to financial statements too. Um, while you're by no means an expert, you, you do have a good overview of at least what you're going to need to learn or what you're going to need to hire for and what the, the basic responsibilities are. So that, I mean, that's, I just went through it pretty quickly, but food runner to server to trainer to bartender to MIT to manager, I mean, that's 2004 to 2002 years of my life. And okay, so then after that ended, you went back to the same money people? So around 2006, while well, I was managing, because Great American is just this, they're this awesome company. I mean, they, they take care of their people. The culture is great. They pay well. So yeah, I had, a good, I had a good job. At that point, I was still only 20, 25 years old. So I went back to money people at that age um, with my full-time job. And because by the time of raising money to finding a location, so those are the next steps. You're still talking about two more years to fill. So uh, had the experience, felt like I could communicate that out through, through my, my updated deck. And, um, you know, you're still a novice when it comes to how much money you need for the project. Uh, but at least the operation side, you're, you're confident. And the best thing is you, you also know what you don't know. So I, it's not like all of a sudden with that two years, I became a chef Right. So I still right. needed a, a product guy, which, which in tech, you know, it's often the, the technical co-founder. Like, so I needed a technical co-founder right. in the kitchen. So I think those, I was trying to solve the next problems in order was food and it's, or I mean, uh, food. Yeah. Um, so chef, uh, you're going to open a restaurant. It starts with the product. So that's unbelievably important yeah did you uh so did you hold uh you know i'm, I'm thinking of like a, a bake-off basically except with cooked foods um like I, that's what i'm envisioning in my mind like how did how did that actual process go like you know hey can i try some of your your best dishes or wh oh finding the technical co-founder yeah the the chef partner uh it turns out it was a, a manager at that restaurant who had come from another group uh, Houston's, which had an amazing reputation. They're now, I believe they've rebranded as Hillstone, but they're one of the kind of pioneers of this. It's, it's nice, casual, but just process driven. There's a, there's a process for everything. Um, consistent, craveable food. And he had worked in the kitchen there for years. He was a Johnson Wales chef. So he knew their system. And when I gave him the, the pitch deck and it had our menu, he understood the product vision and uh, we would actually make stuff at the restaurant because so much of it was already there in terms of Great American was using these awesome vendors for, for beef. They had a bakery that they owned next door. So, you know, we'd, we'd make our post shift meals and just start experimenting. 
with all sorts of different things there. And if we didn't see something that, that, uh, that we wanted for the menu, then, then we had him iterate on it, whether it was a sauce or whether it was a different type of burger, but you're in a restaurant and, and so many chefs will, uh, and restaurant people will, you eat the same thing every day. It's pretty common to start getting creative with the menu and asking for different things for, for you as a server. So we just did a lot of that. And, uh, I mean, make no mistake, great American phenomenal reputation had a, had a lot of awesome products that we got to see what we thought, how they, how they ate on a burger and some we made our, you know, made our own and still to this day are, are on the menu. Um, which ones they have this great, great herb ranch, buttermilk herb ranch that, you know, we, we tweaked everything, but, uh, that's an inspiration between when you taste something, you know, that's the one thing about recipes. It's, there's not a whole lot of IP. Um, so I think, uh, you taste something and you'd like to tweak something here and there and you kind of back into a flavor profile you're looking for. And, and he was able, he was able to do that. And he can do that when someone who can go out to eat and you say, Hey, this person, this restaurant has this amazing thing. Let's go eat there. And they can almost reverse engineer right. something, which is what we did, uh, did a lot of. So but those three things were working at the same time. I and mean, we're talking about two years. So it was finalizing product and menu, raising capital, looking for location. And you have to fake it a little bit because you'd go into these meetings with prospective landlords and there's no money in the bank account. You know, I remember we, we had our company formed and there, there was there was literally like $5,000 in the bank account and you're talking about signing a lease and you have nothing to guarantee. Yeah, we're, we're good yeah. for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all these things, and I mean, I remember the market was so, this is, keep in mind, we, we executed our lease in 2000. It was late 2005, early 2006, right around there. So we opened 2007. So the market was hot. I mean, it, it took a lot to even get meetings because we're a startup brand from a, a then 25-year-old with no money. So even for brokers, like it took a while to find a broker. We found a young broker with CBRE, guys still in this market, still, still am friendly with them. But so he, you have to sell, you essentially have to sell a retail broker on representing you. On rep to waste the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and without the broker, you can't even. Can't even get the meeting. Okay. Yeah. In a market like this. Right. And you know, you want, and of course, naive 25 year old wants in cap corner locations or a, a retail, <laughs> right. but that didn't happen. Um, we ended up getting, I'd call it like a C plus like location. We made it work. Um, but yeah, it, yeah. It's, for, for those of you listening, it is, it is kind of uh it's, it's off the main drag in Arlington, uh, in Boston. And it's, there's these huge high rises, which I, I bet is, you know, where a lot of your early business came from. Uh, but it's kind of behind the street. Right. So it's, it's, you, you kind of have to know where you're going half the time. So you get a lot of foot traffic for the residents, but otherwise it's, you know, it's a first location. Yeah. The best way to describe it, it looks like part of our business plan was under location was find the worst location available in Arlington. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. Yeah. It's hundred percent true. I remember my mom, you never start, stop being a mom, but when I showed it to her, the building was still under construction because it's like an eight story building. And first words out of her mouth were, you know, are you crazy? Um, yes. I mean that, that, yeah. <laughs> yes. And it, but it takes, it also takes a young person without experience. I, I would never go into that location today. Wouldn't touch it. 
That's why so I think so many young people start these interesting because they, they don't know what they don't know and they're just, oh, I'll, I'll make it work. But it, it's, it's a, did, such yeah. a challenging business as is. Why go in with a handicapped? And we definitely did. But you kind of had to, right? So let's... So, so that's where, you know, this, this guy gets you, the broker gets you this location, but what was that sequence with, with the investors? How did those dominoes fall? So there are multiple broker meetings. The only reason this guy went for us is he, he's a young guy. So he was hungry. He's, he was like two years older than I. And then he actually had the pitch deck and his, his wife, he was, he was married. His, his wife said I would eat there. He was like, you know, work with these guys. And it's funny, so much of the credibility is it, it's, I wasn't in any financial position yet to pull this off. So he's taking a leap of faith too. He knows this. Yeah. So he then is trying to get meetings and a lot of people are, it's startup concept, two people who have worked in restaurants, worked luckily a good group, but never owned a restaurant before. If, if you own real estate, why on earth would you want a startup restaurant tour? The failure rate is, is super high. Much rather go with a, a, a established brand who can who you know will make good on the lease or someone with a, a proven track record. So it was really hard getting meetings. And then the only serious meeting we got was because in particular that building was owned by a trade association and the then CEO uh they had built the building, they owned the building next door, and they talked about amenities, and the then CEO wanted a high-end burger spot. That's what, what he wanted. It's perfect. So, and, a, and we weren't gonna have a whole lot of competition because the only competitor at that time in the upscale burger, Five Guys, Five Guys wouldn't go in that location, right? <laughs> so we, we weren't under a ton of competition for that location. So you what, signed it before... Oh, I remember we signed that lease with still $5,000 in the bank account because it's, it's a chicken and the egg, right? It, it's, it's most, most property owners, and even if you're brokers, they want to see money in the bank. But the first question you get after, do you have any restaurant experience from prospective investors is, okay, where's the location? Right. So, and uh, worst case scenario, you're, you're, you're basically just going to file chapter 11 on your own LLC with $5,000 in the bank, right? Yeah. So... Where's the location? Uh, we're targeting Arlington. Okay, well, great. Let me know when you have it. Then you go to the, you know, the property owner. Okay, well, let's see your financials. Oh, we can't get the financials without the location. So it it does. It took for us. Um, there was a a big leap of faith. And actually, I would have signed anything. I mean, thank goodness. Our, our broker did look out for us. I go back now and, and we've renegotiated that lease and there are things that I can't believe I agreed to. But one was they had us on the hook for a ridiculous guarantee. But what's funny when you're 25, 26, you have nothing to take. So you don't really care. Yeah. And how does that guarantee work? So that guarantee was a personal guarantee. So I assumed without... There was no collateral and without a whole lot of net worth. So my, my you thinking bet on yourself. Well, my thinking was if this business goes under, I'm just going to file bankruptcy and then right. who cares about the guarantee? I'll start back over. Now that doesn't work for banks, <laughs> which is the next, the next step because we, so we were able to raise some money. Um, you know, I, I was incredibly frugal. I, I worked all my life. I, I had saved up a, a good chunk of change. 
Uh, I can still remember to this day, my, my partner and I each put in $80,000. That's, that's literally every, every dollar I had, uh, with savings dating back to when I was 15 years old, you know, mowing lawns. And, um, we were able to raise an additional $200,000 from friends and family. So I can remember 360 and then thinking that 360 is enough to build out a fully functioning restaurant in a high rise building that was delivered in a cold, dark shell, which you don't, you don't know any of these things, but let's just say it, it was, we were off. And I remember we were, we were off to the tune of, uh, 150. I mean, we were 150 Jeez. short. And so it sounds like you got, you went to a bank. Yes, we went that. to, so it's, it's funny story. So now we have, and, it, and it's not like you, you, you wait. So we got the broker. We finally got the meeting with the property owner who would take a chance. We got the location. We had most of that raised money. And then you're finding the contractor, right? So step right before that is architect. So architect, then contractor. So architects paid. And now you're, you're putting these plans out simultaneously. They're going to the county for permitting, which is a nightmare, uh, especially in Arlington. And, um, is it hard to find a architect? Uh, no, no. I, I mean, no. I mean, those professional services, granted, I think good architects are hard to find. Um, but just like lawyers, there are thousands of architects, right? It's, it's professional services at the end of the day. Good ones who, who value engineer for you and care and go to, go to battle for you. I think those are, are hard to find. And our architect was, we, I actually still work with him today on another, another project. Um, they're, they're local, but, uh, so had the plans and then you're bidding it, you're bidding it out and you get back these, uh, budgets and they don't match up with yours. Is there just like a, a network of contractors that you're bidding it out to just new, any new restaurants in the area? Like how do you actually find the contractors? So contractors are smart. A lot of people are, they'll watch for when you file the drawings with the County cause okay, that they're reaching out to yeah, you. That sends up a flag and they'll, you know, they'll sell to you. Um, now we work with the same people over and over again, but back then it's, it's like, let me see your references and let me go look at your projects. Uh, so we, we found a contractor that, um, I mean, you shouldn't do a deal with a contractor, not even knowing what a change order is. And you shouldn't do a deal with a contractor where you, you have not truly vetted references and not ask them for references find, Hey, which, which projects I'm just going to go check the materials and then working your back way in. Cause they're just going to send you their, their best references. Right. Uh, so they, they gave us the, the project total and you know, they value engineered it and, uh, it was already over the capital we had not including, uh, change orders, which, which started coming, um, do you get tied up in the permit process you know, whatever your, your window is for permitting, this is if you're, you're doing it yourself. And we, I, I don't even know what an expediter was. I mean, there's a whole position of an expediter, which is someone you pay who has a ton of different clients and they more or less just sit there at the county office and expedite your, so when 
you get rejected because you will, you'll get notified. Then you got to go back to your architect, get the plans changed, get it. And that that's their whole role. It's like $2,000 to hire an expediter to expedite your drawings through, which basically just means they're staying on top of how it's moving back and forth in the various departments. Um, I didn't even know that until our project was already about a month behind. Is that, is that common across? You have to have yeah. to use an expediter. Have to. Um, so yeah, over budget behind schedule change order after change order ended up that, that project and opened the, the change orders. Are those a great example of a change order is just like, Hey, now that I'm seeing this built, I want to move this over here. And gotcha. they're just like, uh, well, that's going to impact plumbing. So we're going to have to move this. It's going to be this amount of materials plus this okay. markup. Okay. And there are a lot of contractors who will really pad those change orders. Like the, those are the fat margin because they have you in a position where you're emotional, you're building go. out. It's like, I, I got to I got to change this. Uh, a great change order was that, that I wouldn't know to look for is I didn't look well and thorough thoroughly in the lease but since we're in a, a garage eight floors or, or a office building there's a parking garage down below so it's required that we x-ray the slab beneath us so you don't hit any rebar or any structural but when they gave me their bid to the project it it didn't account for x-ray and then when we go to make the first drills it's hey it's required that we x-ray Okay, well, we didn't put that in our, that'll be an extra $8,000. <laughs> that is um, wild. And I don't know the exact cost, but it wasn't cheap. It, it wasn't cheap. And so, x-rays you can only obviously do at nighttime when, when no one's in there. But. And, and so, all right, so how long from, you, you know, you sign, you sign the lease, the county approves it, and then you start building? Is that, or did you start building first? So you can start doing phases. So okay. like, um, so. Where are we at now in the, in the process? So you're, you're, they'll break the plans out into like the first thing that you're going to do, um, core drilling, for example, like, and that's that whole x-ray thing, um, framing. So you can start certain parts of the plan. They'll approve certain things and, and you can start. And then it's contingent, like the contractor, once they have their schedule, they're going to work straight through. Uh, and, and if you get snagged, if you take that risk, if you get snagged in the county, like then they're idle and they can actually charge you for the idle time because they have a, you know, someone on site manager, all that type of stuff. But we went, we went over, over budget by $150,000 and that that's a whole nother, uh, where does $150,000 magically come from? Because now the conversation with prospective investors is, Hey, I'm already mismanaging this project. Give me some more money. So, and you'd already exhausted the well. So we ended up going to the bank and, and, Rule of thumb is banks do not lend money unless it's collateralized. It's just a it's just a hard fact. Even when we were opening up our second restaurant, they wouldn't loan money against the first restaurant because those assets are worse than a used car when you drive them off the lot. They're not worth anything, and you don't really have a whole lot of value unless you own the building. So you have to collateralize it with something. Uh, so the only thing left that my business partner and I owned, and well, he owned was was his home. So he put up his house Damn. to collateralize Damn. a $165,000 SBA loan. I remember we needed 150 and we figured we would probably need a little bit more. So now, we, now you're, now you're 165, to house is on the line. And then he, he's, he was smart. I mean, he maneuvered that to 
make us equal equity partners. So now it was, you know, my baby, my, my business plan, years of, of work and planning before even meeting him. And I would have done the same thing. So now we're equal, which is a whole nother conversation for another podcast on never doing an equal equity partnership because that'll create problems later. Um, so in terms of timeline, yeah, what, what month are we at now it's from the, the signing of the lease to, all right, we're stepping on the gas. We're finishing the build, got it approved, got the money signing, signing of lease. So money, money staggered. I mean, our lease was signed before the full money was in, but building So, so space was delivered. Um, we had already started the permitting process because the building was still under construction when we did the lease. So space was delivered. It was a good nine months. So we opened, so we signed the lease. I, I can actually tell you the dates because we opened uh, June, June 17th, 2007. We had signed that lease in um, December. So that gives you the idea of the And are you, you're paying. We, we had six it? months of free rent from okay. when they delivered it. Uh, which is, which is helpful. I mean, we still had a couple months where we were paying. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Any, any, whenever, yeah. Especially in restaurants, whatever your budget is just out of the gate, multiply it by 1.5 is what, what I have found. It's a good piece of advice. So, and so were you talking to, you know, suppliers, potential employees at this point? Uh, you know, what, what else was going on? Cause obviously the build's the most important at that, at that point in time, but you know, it's time to start getting, figuring out how you're actually going to run the thing. So in, I guess we'll break those things down in terms of product. We were in a good place and suppliers, we all knew from our previous job. So it's just, but you're not going to get product in until you have a health permit. So you, you, that was the one piece that you really felt confident about. Yeah, we knew what our food okay. was going to look like, taste like. Yep. Uh, you know, what, what buns we were going to use, what, what disposables, what that type of stuff. Uh, the problem is, so the, the only disconnect is, so you know that stuff, but making a couple burgers at home or, or making a couple burgers at a professionally designed kitchen, which was the old restaurants, that's one thing. But doing it in a poorly designed kitchen, which ours was, because we were first-time yeah, entrepreneurs I, and we didn't have a kitchen designer, which you should have a kitchen designer. I remember you telling me that you uh, you, you set it up wrong. It's the one thing you can't change. You can't change it. That's why it, w- there's many things I will will talk about open and honestly in the restaurant business. And, and one is um, the thing I hate most is how capital intensive it is. And then B, there's no, like, it's not software where if, if you write a line of code and it's not working exactly how you could tweak the line of code. If you design all, you know, you put your hood in the wrong place, you're not moving your hood. You're dealing with it and you're dealing with it for 10, 10 years. If you're lucky yeah. to last that long, you know, and beyond the original location still opening. We're in, you know, year 13 and hoods in the same place. Um, you have to work around it, it work, to yeah. make it work. So yeah, products, good people, uh, that, that was easy back then because of my age. So I was 27 when I opened the doors, but talked about this restaurant like it existed already for three or four years. So when you're young, it was easy to just, in, in the industry, recruit servers, bartenders, even if it's not, Hey, come build a career with me. 
come help me open this. And opening restaurants is like, it's this stressful, crazy, fun challenge. And I think good, interested people, especially when you have a, like, these friends, colleagues who want to see you succeed, it was pretty easy to get people to either leave their existing jobs, their server jobs or bartender jobs or hospitality jobs to come help me. It says, hey, just give me six months of your time. Or you work 40 hours a week over there, give me 20 hours a week. So we had, those were two things that we had. We had people and we had product. Where we absolutely got destroyed was process. And that, so much of that is design. Uh, because and you're talking about the process of the day-to-day -day operations. Yeah, like the worst mistake restaurants make, especially, and even veterans make this mistake, is, is they market their opening. So like, why on earth? It, there's no such thing as a great opening. So why market it? Slow and steady, learn and iterate. And of course, I, I was a marketing guy and I, I did a, a pretty funny job of teasing the opening. I and mean, this is pre-Twitter and pre-Facebook. I mean, we did all sorts of weird things. A lot of things that were picked up by local news. Everything from, we did it again, we opened our second restaurant. It was, you know, win free burgers for a year. The second restaurant we did, you know, name a burger after yourself or free burgers for life and you could pay for it. I remember leaving t-shirts on park benches with handwritten notes, like, you know, love letters. Uh, and they'd just be, I would leave them all around and, and people notice this stuff. I mean, Boston is a lot different than it, than it was back then. Uh, there was less noise too and talking to customers. I mean, we just did a lot of weird, wonky grassroots and people were really, really excited, which was a mistake because I remember day one, we had a line out the door around the building and, um, couldn't handle it. Oh, couldn't. It was a disaster. We ended up first lunch. Uh, we shut it down, and I went into the line and handed out business cards and just wrote "free burger" on it. Free burger. I mean, it was like it was awful. I mean, just if there was a hole, I would have jumped jumped in it. We just weren't we weren't prepared, and we realized really quickly there that the soft openings were a disservice because you usually just invite friends and family. No one's going to tell you it's bad. And then you never truly simulate a busy shift. And in a busy shift, when that place opened, uh, you're talking about 100 to 120 guests in an hour, that 12 to 1 lunch hour. We're into this heavy lunch area. You're, and so what, what is that, uh, like, what, what is your actual grill space for a burger? Like, how, how long does that, what, what is our your... Our opening, opening grill, uh, we had a five-foot five foot charbroiler and a, and a two foot flat top. Cause we did different things. Um, but even the charbroiler was a giant mistake because flat top is so much easier to manage and, and scale the production of burgers. But we didn't even rip that thing out for two years. So how many, how many burgers to. at a time are we talking? Uh, uh, gosh, you know, everything's made to order. So a guest, orders we call it it gets put down on the the grill so you, average burger seven ounce burger cooks in you know if it's medium well it's cooking eight minutes so you're just backing into a math problem yeah you no know, but how many how many spots on the grill 30 okay. i think 30 i mean yeah. you, on a charbroiler you got to manage hot spots too which which is it, you it don't have a recover. process for that no either. yeah no um 
Yeah, so we never processed for, waiting for anything. So we, we, we did shut down. We ended up realizing that lunch was going to be this huge draw. Granted, at the time, Boston was this huge uh, lunch lunch area. Not a whole lot of people living there as much or going out. So we shut down for lunch, and then we did a week of nighttime only and weekend. And weekends were pretty tame there, too. I mean, just think office districts. Yep. This 2007. So that's how we got our sea legs was and then we felt like we were ready and actually let's let's go back to the timeline for a second so because i want to ask how long did that take where you actually went from you know it's a total mess on on day one to you know you're confident in the operations but when you were dealing with the contractors how long you, you said june is when you signed the lease so no no december 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 signed the lease we probably got the space in uh Probably, I think we got it late January because we had a little bit of a head start before the building was developed. Okay. So then, you know, February to, to June was from start of build out to first dollar in the, the register. Okay. So June. So you were talking yeah. essentially seven months around there. Actually, that's, no, that's, yeah, that timeline. No, I guess that's, that's five months. So it's five months. So five months, December would have been when we filed for permitting. Okay. So seven, so seven months. Yeah. So, so, so seven months. And then how long did it take from, oh my God, we're, we're not going to be able to handle this. You know, we got to shut down to, okay, we're, we're starting to reach cruising altitude as far as being able to at least serve people. Serving people and just struggling through it was that, that week one, then we just went to dinner. Um, it was probably probably a week and a half before we felt confident, but you're working through all these different struggles. So I'll give you a, a great example is we, we hand cut. So we, we ground, ground all our meat in house. We hand cut all of our fries and we didn't have enough space to do any of that. And those were like pie in the sky. We wanted to control as much quality as we could. Uh, but once you, you start living it, it was all right, well, we got to go find a meat partner who's going to then hit our spec. We're going to inspect their facilities because we can't keep up with the volume in our tiny refrigerator because we designed it too small. Uh, Hand-cut French fries, they're, they're a nightmare, and you don't, you don't realize it until you live it. Hand-cut French fries at small volume, manageable, but heavy volume where you're doing 300 orders of fries in a day, um, double cook, got to blanch them. We're, we're out of space. So actually you know, had to work with someone who would hit our spec and then eventually move to a, a, a frozen fry, um, you know, as the, as you learn and how you have to execute. And how did you find the, how did you go out and actually find that, that beef partner? Like, so it was, well, great American restaurants had it. So we developed it while we were working. Right. But you said them. that you had to go find, uh, someone who could actually manage the process because you wanted the, the quality, right? Yeah. We, we stuck with them. It's just selling them on a vision. Okay. Right. Eventually they're going to be so five, so five of these custom. Yeah. They did a custom, custom blend, but a lot of people will too. Like right now we have our own, our own beer, right? It's still our own meat spec. We, we have a, we do a good amount of volume, but then a lot of it is you're, you're selling people. You never stop selling people on a vision. And are these, are these, uh, the actual, I guess, you know, in the, in the beef, you know, are these people operating the farms or are these just distributors that are getting it from? So they'll have the relationships with the farm. 
Okay. They'll bring it into, you know, a USDA certified facility where they'll, you know, handle the grinding process. Okay. Um, so, and, 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 and butcher and grind and, um, manage that facility. But I, I will say from someone who had that in house, the, you'd much rather leave certain things to certain experts and it just work with the best. Are we the best at managing a safe, clean meat grinding facility? Or are we, are we just really good at a clean restaurant and it's the latter. So I'd rather go to someone who, who does that. That's their, yep. their business. So I think it was a win-win from, from both. Um, but you know, then again, we had no, no choice. I will tell you this, you hold on, if you're a control freak and you believe those details separate you, which a lot do, but some, you, you just have to make concessions to make it work. So like, okay, you'll grind our meat, but we still want to press it in house. So we now do at the one location, 500 burgers a day. Well, they now press it for us and they hit our spec. It's perfect. Uh, you know, fresh, never frozen, delivered every single morning. But you, you have to ask yourself, I think so many restaurants, they, they hold on to this. Well, we bake our own bread in house. Well, if your bakery is four miles away and it's your, it's your bun and you, and you work with them and you've inspected their systems and their process and they meet your spec, it, what, what's the difference? It's four miles. Yeah. So I think people try to do too much. And uh, there's this healthy balance of like, instead of just doing a bunch of things good, and for, especially in this business, do a, a few things well. Like I think people should make concessions on buns and, and train people or develop people. I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges right now in our industry. And so how, how long did you actually go before you knew that buns was going to make it? So open June, um, we had a strong summer, so still it's, it's not like we were highly profitable, but we were cash flow positive, you know, pretty much right out of the gate. So you get confident and then, um, you have no idea cause you have no data on seasonality, which turns out is a thing. So we had a really strong June, July, you know, August had a dip in DC and then even September, October were okay. But November, December, January, February, things fell off a cliff. I mean, just off a cliff revenues in like half and they still take a dip. There are four slowest months, but it's not nearly as significant. It's plus we know DoorDash crushes it. Those. Yeah. No one wants to. Yeah. Everyone we, we used to always joke, uh, everyone who would now walk four blocks walks two blocks or today don't leave uh so it, it was a really hard four months and we couldn't pay ourselves so my business partner and i so i remember uh it was it would have been right around december january we we both got other jobs so i did bartending i went back to bartending and um he went to go work i remember uh, morton's um and we did that on purpose so our schedules were a little bit different so our days would be one person would open and um, 
that person would get out early and they'd go to their second job. And the other person would come in right before the lunch rush and they'd stay through and close the restaurant. And then you'd flip-flop the next day. So you closed the restaurant, you came in a little bit late, you went to the next job. That nope. is uh, that, that is pretty legit. And I think... Oh, it was, it was seven days a week. Yeah. I, I think right now you see a lot of entrepreneurs, I guess, in the, the current funding environment. Like the thought of that is, you know, it's, it's, you don't even think about it. It's like, well, I would just, you know, I'd rather, especially with, with software companies, you know, I'm just going to... I'm just going to start over or I'm going to raise money or I'm going to sell. Like, but you had a physical location. You had bills to pay. You had employees. That's, that's what, and that was very early like in a, you know, software startup. You're talking about the same timeline a year down the road. You're keeping it really, I mean, you're on your laptop and you're in, that's all you need in your apartment, but you, you guys have all this and you're making it work. So how long did you actually work those second jobs? Over a year. So I can remember the turning point of the business. So it's kind of a funny story with relative to the second job. Yes, it kept us afloat. We could um, pay ourselves just enough to offer other jobs to live. Um, but you don't have time to think about the business either or work on the business as much. You're just tired. You're, you're working all the time. And that's, that's definitely disadvantageous. Um, but we, we stuck to just our beliefs and, and what we did, we were making sure. So one person from, we were open by that point, seven days a week, our first few months, we, we weren't open on Sunday, but our belief was every single thing that leaves this kitchen is going to have one of our seals of approval. So we, one of us worked expo. One of us was there What's seven that, days expo? a week. Expo is like the final place where the food's put together okay. before it goes out. What I talked about, food running, that's where the food runner picks it up and takes it out. So we, every single thing was going to be stacked perfect, made perfect, and put our stamp. And we knew if we did that day in and day out, like eventually it's all about the product. We would be successful. It was just a matter of hopefully the money didn't run out. Um, second jobs kept us, kept us alive. But I'll never forget uh, a Washington Post writer reached out and said, hey, we're doing a little thing. Can I come in and take photos? It's like, yeah, of course. So I remember them coming in and taking photos. I didn't think anything of it. I wasn't even there when they were taking photos. I was at my bartending job and my business partner had said, hey, yeah, they, they definitely showed up. You know, he made, I said, whatever you do, just stack it high. So, you know, this burger looked awesome. I remember fried onion, onion rings on top of the burger. So the next week I'm pulling in to the parking garage because we shared one, one parking pass, whoever had to go to the next job, they got to park that day and I'm pulling into the garage and it's one of those Washington posts. You don't get it. You don't get it. Advertisements. And it was, um, about quote unquote, new guys on the rise. That was the, the radio ad. And I didn't think anything of it. Turn my car off, walk up, <laughs> Business partner's there, and he's holding the Washington Post, and there on the front page of the Post is that picture of that, that burger. So five guys, new guys. So it was an article talking about three new players who were in this market who were kind of challenging for the title of a better burger. So they profiled all of us, but that was, was 
that was it. That article hit in July and we, I remember we had never broken, we had never broken $3,500 in a day and we did 5k, 5k, five like 5500 and then on a saturday we broke six and i remember saturday we ran out of food um so i was out in front of the restaurant at like 8 30 turning people away handing out my business cards uh but that was the the turning point we we had probably overnight we had this 50 percent boost and that tapered a little bit but it it, it remained about a 25 to 35 percent boost for the year and that was the momentum uh, that we were able to build off of. But you, you talk about near-death experiences. I remember that winter, so coming out of, of February, and there's no, there's no knowns, right? So we don't know that all of a sudden business is gonna pick back up in the springtime. So you just, you had your first summer, you believed, but it could have been just, it was the fact that we were new. So you go through this terrible winter, there, there's no known that spring's gonna pick up. Now we have the data that we know spring picks up, but we got to March, and I remember um, using my credit card to pay for anyone who would take a credit card. So ABC store, like they'll let you pay with a credit card. So anyone who would let you pay with a credit card so we could keep cash to pay our people. So I remember running up, we were in our credit cards up to like $20,000. We were at the end. Um, and then luckily spring april may picked up and then it went into another good summer then we got that boost in july and then we're in we're in good shape and yeah. it was off to the races i so i would never say off to the races i always call that that business there's 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 three types of business right you have rocket ships you have dogs and then you have what i think's almost the middle is it's just a it's just like a profitable business right <laughs> no, no yeah so some people love that, but it's called a job. And like, I was an entrepreneur, like I didn't want to work in restaurants every day. Like I wanted to build a business and we weren't successful enough at that time. Granted, this was only, uh, you know, that first summer, it's 2008. So you said off to the races. We were by no means off to the races. You know, 2008, 2009, we we're up 30% over previous year. It was profitable. It made money. We did over a million bucks in revenue out of, you know, 2000 square feet, but uh, from, you know, from a year before that. Oh, right. night, night, night and day. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, still my, my favorite, favorite quote, um, is, you know, from the hard thing, uh, hard thing about hard things. He's like, you know, first year of my business, I slept like a baby and I woke up every 30 minutes, you know, crying. And that's, that was our first, first year. It was, it was, it was, it was brutal. Um, it's almost like there's like a lost two years too. Like I'll have friends who are like, oh yeah, that's when I was in law school. It's like, ah, oh, it must've been like 2007, 2008. Cause like, I don't remember anything other than working. So two trying year to, trying to survive. blackout. Yeah. I mean, I mean, very, very true. I do not remember much other than working during that time. But when it came out the other side and you're doing a million of revenue, the, the hard part is it's still not a rocket ship. So like, you know, your, your P and L is good. I don't think it's enough at that point. It wasn't enough to raise a whole bunch of capital and, and go. So I think the next step would have been what we ended up doing in 2018 was we took everything we had learned from that first experiment, fixed it, 
And when we opened our second restaurant, the, it was completely different. Um, but uh, you know, the background, I mean, the background is 2000, late 2009, early 2010, my business partner who keep in mind was a chef background, worked in restaurants all his life. That was his passion. That was, was what he enjoyed doing. I actually sold the business to him and his family members. So I left and then, you know, dove back into other entrepreneurial ventures, still moonlighted as a bartender. That's when I met your buddy. I went back to school um, and primarily went back onto like the digital marketing side. But it, what, what tugged me about Big Buns, it was this like n- unfinished story because we, we took a swing and we, we kind of hit a single and like, man, if I could just go back in time, this is what I would, would fix and this is how I would approach it and this is what I would do. I was older. I had time to think. I had learned a ton. I had a lot of experience. You had to scratch that itch. Yeah. So I eventually, you know, reacquired the business. And that was, so four years later, 2014. So remodeled the existing one, like a bootstrap remodel, um, changed a few process things, loaned the business $25,000 to do the changes. Like it was all hypothesis of like, if we had just tweaked this and just done this and those changes made the world a difference. So, you know, the business had stayed pretty stagnant, you know, it had a lot of competition. Um, it, it wasn't operating quite as the, the same level when you have two owners in there, you have one who has, you know, had family at that point and taking days off and, and whatnot. So the business was, it was still, you know, in okay shape, um, in hovering right around a million bucks but was able to take it from 2014 to 2018 from roughly a million to over 1.9 million out of the same Damn. square footage. And then it was, it same wasn't location that same location, was... same location. Yeah. And, and then it was 2018 granted while that was happening, we were already working on, you know, I was working on the new, still a big buns, damn good burgers, but the new look, the new feel, the new function, how, how it needed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about that because, you know, we didn't really get into the actual day to day of, uh, what you were doing in the early days. And I'm sure that it kind of mirrored what you're doing, you know, now or you, what you were doing with, uh, the second location, which, you know, cause you're not, you're not in the kitchen. So what are you doing? You're, you're hiring because in the early days you had, you know, your friends, but with this one, you're, how you, how do you find people? You know, which POS are you going with? What are the decisions that you're making on a day-to-day basis to make sure that the, the business is actually doing well? I mean, what does that look like? So I think it's, there's two. When, when the business opened and you're in the business, you're, you are doing everything. There was not a single thing that, that just whatever pops up. You, you have a day and you know you got to run a shift, right? So it's everything from I'm coming in in the morning, I have an opener, I'm making sure they checked in everything, mm-hmm. what was on the invoice. Um, so supplies are yeah. there. Yeah, supplies, that, that prep schedule, you're managing call-outs because if they're call-outs or, or people are late, you're ma- making sure that you're ready for the shift. Shift meeting, making sure everyone's in their station, and then you're working the floor talking to customers. And then you know after the lunch rush, you catch some time, you're catching up on emails. You're, you're making calls to suppliers. You're doing your accounting. Um, you, you're working on any type of 
marketing project you have, updating website. I mean, there's literally not a single thing that you're, you're yeah. not doing. Preparing financials, and then you, you go into dinner shift, and then you're, you're back at it again. And then you manage the, the dinner rush. And then once that ends, you're making sure your team's closing up and you're doing kind of your closing admin work as well. Uh, so that's, that's kind of full stack operational. And then you're squeezing in whatever time you have for the marketing, new process development, new product development, so improving, recruiting. The business. exactly. You're, it, it's that age old, it's, it's, you're working in the business or you're working on the business. When you are in the early days, unless you're, unless you're truly a restaurant tour or a restaurant entrepreneur who has done this before and is, is designing a business, uh, you're working in the business. And that was the, the big, big difference because you can't, when you're working in the business, it's like you're just blinded inside the four walls. You, you don't, you're not getting out and seeing what the market is doing. You're not looking at what competitors, you're not reading as much. You're not spending time online seeing what innovators are doing. You're, you're not, you're, you're, you get a little bit stagnant and then you're not working on, at the end of the day, there are three things for the, the restaurant business and, it, and it's not some mystery, it's, it's people, product, and process. That's what makes most businesses successful, but in particularly the restaurant. So product, that you're executing your product at the highest level consistently and that you're always ahead of trend. It's gotta be good food, yeah. Yeah, crave-worthy destination food. And yeah. today, Instagram didn't exist back then, but it looks great on Instagram and it tastes better when you actually experience it in person. So product, product, product. And it, and it starts with the product. No, it, there's, a, there's a reason why hole-in-the-wall restaurant, dirty, amazing food is gonna do business Restaurant that someone spent $10 million building, but the food sucks, there's a reason they're going to go out of business. It's the product. And people often forget that. Blue, have you ever been to a blue and white carryout? No. Alexandria? Oh, God. It's this uh, just falling down shack with chicken and mashed potatoes that's, it's, I think it's four or five bucks. Yeah. And you get as much food as you want. And it's just, it's excellent. Yeah. Starts with the product. And then people is, that's a lot of what I do today is is recruiting retaining developing training um and then thinking in the future of what key positions you need to fill and how you're going to fill them and how you're going to keep your existing people motivated and happy and performing at a high level because i i remember you told me uh i i think i asked you about the you know the the minimum wage 15 dollars, and you said something something to the tune of well i, I don't really care because i'm always going to pay my my guys more because the people have to be, you know, happy and motivated and, and offer good customer service. A absolutely. You can't, as, as an employer, it's a competitive advantage. You also, it's, I think it, it, it's hard looking at someone in the eye and saying, you know, let's, let's take our average food runner or register person, they're late teens, look them in the eye and say, well, I wouldn't have done this when I was your age. I mean, you, I wouldn't have run, I, I wouldn't have run food for, eight, nine bucks an hour. Um, so you got to create an environment where they not just enjoy what they're doing, but are, are compensated well. Because it's, it's a high turnover labor pool, right? Oh, In yeah. the restaurant industry. Absolutely. So you got it. I mean, you're, you're 
pay top dollar and get people that are happy to work there, then yeah, so you know. and we've we've even adjusted our whole service model to to pay our people more. Um, but you know, product people, and then the greatest thing in the food business is is process. So at the end of the day, food business, it's real time manufacturing, except your customers are on your factory floor at times trying to shout out customizations that you need to make in, in real time. So there's no, that's every single thing should have a process straight down to how a napkin's folded to how much head is on a beer to how many ice cubes this cocktail gets every single thing, shirt tucked, untucked, uh, you know, how often do you clean the bathroom? You're doing a 30 minute restaurant check or restroom check. How do you communicate the restroom check? What, what system is involved? Every single thing is a system and process driven. And not only do you have to design those and implement and get buy-in, it's constant. I mean, that's, that's the invisible piece of this, right? Is when you ordered something and you're wondering where, where it is 30 minutes later, you know, where's my food? that's what's wrong isn't back right it's a process it's process breakdown and then but it's also a process breakdown and how to address a problem because problems are inevitable in any business and true particularly the yeah. food business so what's your spec time for us uh we want a, a burger to hit your table from the moment you order from the moment your first word comes out of your mouth you know you're greeted to your table 10 minutes dinner time 12 13. so what happens when you run 16 minutes well it's a table visit that's a manager stopping by. Hey, how you doing? Just to let you know, you know, your order will be out in a, in a few minutes. There's anything I can do for you. Because people just want to be acknowledged. But that's a process. Yep. Right? Is the managers trained on a process of there's a time threshold where they go work the dining room. So those are the, the three things. And then um, when you're doing them, it's one thing. But then when you're, you're, you're moving on into a leadership role and trying to scale, it, it's... You're trying to figure out how to get high level people to join your organization and to do those those things that you were doing so then you can work on the next thing. So for example, right now, we're in the design phase of a, a new restaurant coming to Reston. So the target is to open late November, but definitely Q4 of this year. And um, we made a ton of different even though you think the second restaurant is perfect, uh, we made countless mistakes there. So we now look at it as, hey, third, third time's the charm. We need to nail this, this design, functionality, ease of work, high, high volume. Even the restaurant prototype is different now because so much of it's online. So that has changed. How does a restaurant look and feel when 50% of the revenues are coming through either third-party delivery or, or your own. Yeah, that's that's actually uh, a good segue. I think that you know the story of you selling buns, um, and actually you know to to a larger chain and how, how that all worked. I think we could save that for a for another day. But I think we'll close with what what are your thoughts on how the industry has changed? Because you know we started this this journey here. You were talking about you know two thousand three, two thousand four. Um, and now you look at, you know, DoorDash, who just overtook Grubhub uh, as the number one delivery provider in the country. Uh, and you have even, you know, Olo with ordering, you have, I mean, there's a million of these companies, you know, how is the restaurant industry changing, you know, especially now that you are at um, a larger group who has to manage across all of these locations, 
you know, how do you think about that? What, what are you, what is your perspective? So love it or, or hate it. It's part of the business. They're, they're here. They're here to stay. People what, what want consumers want. Yeah. They, people want convenience. So you got to make the decision. Are you going to vertically integrate and get in the logistics business like a Domino's and try to do it yourself or are you going to use third party? Well, third party comes with a cost. So I think that's the, the big decision. I would love to get to a size where I could test bringing delivery in-house because I'd like to control that whole experience. But I doubt it, you can be as good as the restaurant business as you can in logistics when someone's just focusing directly on that. So how we approach it is the, these are, we're going we're gonna to use the word partners. They're selling our product. Let's have a great relationship. Let's treat, when the drivers come in, let's treat them well. Let's design our packaging so food carries well. Um, See, that, that's the key there is the change in, in process that these, that these services are creating. Oh, and well, you have to design for it. On the flip side, you also have to realize that they are a competitor of your own digital sales. So you need to advertise against them. So if you Google Big Buns Burger Delivery, they're going to advertise on your keywords. So why wouldn't you put up a fight against them? Uh, you know, we put marking materials in the bag, whether you're supposed to or not. Yeah. We're going to do it. Um, if we could afford to, it would all be custom packaging saying, hey, you know, order online at Big Buns next time. And then let's talk about what we can do as far as incentives. So loyalty works on ours. Uh, low cost leadership. So we purposely do a markup on Uber Eats and DoorDash so we can control, at least we're going to have the, the low price guarantee in the marketplace. Granted, we don't deliver it to you, but if you're willing to come pick it up, we can right. guarantee. So loyalty, low price guarantee, um, delight. So we'll do all sorts of things like if it's someone who is a regular, uh, a milkshake's waiting for them, free cup, that type of stuff. Little, little pieces of delight. Uh, and then you can do online delight. So if they order through our system, it's, they get a monthly promo code. And then also we do product exclusivity. So products that you can only get on our online ordering system, you can't get at those others. So you need to think about them as you're competing against yourself in a way. Like how would you compete against yourself? Oh, well, I, what if I could be cheaper? What if I could add loyalty? What if I could have ex these new products? So you do those things. It's, um, it's two trains on the, on, on, you know, running parallel essentially. But I think that those services are certainly, you know, they're, they're cognizant of that and they're, you know, working to integrate as much as they can. You know, when you talk about loyalty, I mean, they're every day, more and more people are going to across the entire country are signing up, uh, you know, for DoorDash and eventually they're going to have the whole damn country in there, yeah. you know, as users. And that is something that, you know, can, can be leveraged by restaurants. Oh, I, I think today, if you're, if you're truly differentiated, you're doing per square foot revenue that would exceed if this whole kind of delivery transition didn't happen. I, I mean, I think it's, it's a, a net win for the talented operators. I think from a yes, new process, the new space we're, we're designing in Reston, it has a bigger kitchen than it would have four years ago because you can increase volume. So for example, Sherlington, we use Uber Eats, we use DoorDash, we use our own online ordering system. We're at capacity Friday lunch, Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. 
most nights over in the Sherlington restaurant, we could put Grubhub or Bite Squad or Postmates or any of them or who, you know, whoever gets in the space. We could add those on, but we can't execute it due to our current kitchen size. So we're designing the next restaurant to, to truly be able to do you know, three million in revenue. Um, and then if we tack breakfast on, you know, three and a half million breakfast isn't under assault by breakfast is still largely convenient and people don't wake up on Saturday, Sunday morning. Maybe some do, but not thinking first thing, let's get, well, they're good. What they're going to do is get the offices. Yeah. They're They're going to get the offices and they're going to get those breakfast orders in. And then you guys are going to be pumping out breakfast in the morning. So, um, but it's it's look at every single other industry that was that was upended by tech. It's inevitable. It's uh, you know from Amazon getting products delivered to your door the next day to the hotel industry did the same thing with you know taking the hotel brands through the Travelocity or whatever. And I believe it was a CEO of Marriott is is best quote was like we're in a in a never ending battle for who owns the customer right now and of course they're famous for their marriott points uh but but it's the truth and, and that's the thing that bothers me is who owns the customer it's an uber eats customer at the end of the day yes they buy from buns but uber eats doesn't really care if they buy from us or restaurant next door they just want that person to buy from uber eats so you need to be cognizant of yeah that. and i think that's where brand once again product process good people because that's how you execute the great product so i think that the those three key things people product process are just as important for the new kind of online delivery well i think i think that those are uh some good parting words all right right now so all right thank you craig great to have you on appreciate it thank you all right